Hello and welcome to the Pinch of Magic podcast with me, Rebecca Anuin. And today I have another fabulous guest for us. I am joined by Gina Martin, um, author of the series When She Wakes and High Priestess in her, I don't know, local community? <laughs> Wouldn't that be right of your, of your pagan circle? And I really want to speak to Gina because she very much speaks a language that I want to explore more about. And it's the power of stories. But when stories entwine with the land. And I first came across this concept um, from a person called Will Storr, who wrote a book. Um, oh my God, I'm so rubbish at remembering book titles. Anyway, he wrote a brilliant book, it's Science of Storytelling. And he introduced to me a concept. I mean, he didn't create it, but he shared a concept of how our stories come from the land and how they shape us. And so when I was reading about Gina, I know she used a term called like spirituality in their ecosystems. And I was like, oh, this sounds like a juicy topic. So welcome, Gina. Thank you. It's so nice to be with you this morning in this so, bright and not so bright morning here in the US. But yes, <laughs> I know. I was like, Oh, the weather over here at the moment is like spring one day and then we're back in autumn with the rain and then it's spring. And then today we have a bit of blue sky, so it's quite nice. But our land, it's really important to us, isn't it? So it is. tell me about this weaving of stories and land and the importance of it. Let's well, just dive straight in. Let's <laughs> just dive straight in. Um, I come at this from a, a number of different angles. One is that uh, living on, in North America, I I am I am evolved from people who came from somewhere else, mm -hmm. and so the looking for home or the looking for groundedness or rootedness, it seems to be this constant hunger that I find among people in North America that it's a you know there's sort of this insistent or driving need to claim ownership probably because most of where we are, we stole from somebody else. So um, that interesting flavor of demanding site-specific ownership, I always find really curious and it drives people. And as I become a storyteller throughout my life, I find it really interesting that people pull their stories from their place, but also from some lineage that could be quite mythical. You know, mm. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in a, going to St. Patrick's grade school in Northern Indiana, which for those listeners around the world is a very uh, immigrant specific place. It's a lot of people of Irish descent and a lot of people of Polish and French Canadian descent who are all very Catholic, but they claim their personalities from the people that arrived three, four hundred years ago. So I always thought it was really curious that we are derived of the place we live in right now and the place that we say we know. Mm. We say we know. Um, and, and where those two come together, there's friction. So to really own where you are, especially when we come in a culture of thievery of land stealing is really interesting you know to say i am of you name it knowing that the people who were of that place were driven out 250 years ago it's really mm -hmm. curious it it means that we live a life 
consistently live a life where we're fooling ourselves about who we are. And that very friction I find really fascinating. And how do you find that shapes us? um, Well, you know, crooks have a particular way of disarming the people around them. And I think that as a culture, North Americans live this life of, well, I better, you know, claim who I am really loudly because then I'm going to be able to fool people from knowing that I'm not really this thing. You know, it's the con artist gone amok, if you want. It's the the sort of um, Western hemisphere version of the great con. And what I find really interesting is within the last, say, 40, 50 years, there's been a burgeoning of Native American spirituality on this continent, of Native American identity, and of rematriating land. And there's nothing more beautiful to me than the word rematriation, because it really means that we get to peel away the layers of deceit and really know where we are. Um, For example, where I live, the house I live in, the land that I steward, was once a village of the Ramapo Lenape peoples. And that's really important to me, that I honor them always, that the people who were here first get acknowledged. And that I acknowledge that I'm merely a steward of this land. And Mm -hmm. I hope to honor it, but also to learn from it, to let it inform me and the stories that I tell and the way that I live my life. I would love for people to say that the way I live my life has been informed by the land that I take care of. So why do you think there has been this big con? And and from America, do you see that in the UK too? Because when I think about, there's, there's a phrase, isn't there? Like in America, 200, um, sorry, in the UK, 200 miles is a long time. And in America, 200 years is a years long time. Is a long time. <laughs> Whereas when I think about, not that I'm a scholar of British history whatsoever, <clears throat> but we have been we have been taken over many, many times. We have been invaded many, 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 mm-hmm. many times. And of course, mm-hmm. we've also done the invasion close, you know, closer to this side of things. But is do you find there is a difference between like the United States being like the culture air quotes being newer as we know it today? Mm-hmm. And like looking at another country that maybe is air quotes older in the, like this or is or do both lands still deceive themselves well that's curious isn't it because i mean i've been a celtophile ever since mm. i can remember i did go to st patrick's grade school and was baptized by monsignor monahan so there was a certain degree of uh irishness that we claimed And of course, the Irish have a big chip on their shoulder, as well they should, um, from 800 years of British domination. But you also hear it in Wales and Mm -hmm. in the burgeoning revival of Scots Gaelic and of Scottish independence movement. And so I think that the layers of invasion and colonization the longer they are present, the more they concretize and the more the people there become this conglomeration of Mm -hmm. things. And I think that this desire for some sort of hearkening back to a purity of person, a purity of peoples is a fool's errand because everywhere Mm -hmm. you go, people have been in migration constantly. But I think that the, the, 
the more we can get close to people who actually know the place they live in, who actually own the language that has emerged from that place. I mean, that's why I think the revival of the Celtic languages is so important because they're rich. And if you, you know, if you think about place names and weather words and, um, you know, that those things are so rich because they inform how people figured out how to be people. And mm. people figuring out how to be people that live in harmony with the land and allow the land to nourish them and allow themselves to nourish that land in return, that balance is so far gone for most of us these days. So anything that brings us back into a worldview, I mean, language is a worldview, right? Mm. What language we speak informs the way we see the world. So specifically, like with some of the Native American languages, Native Americans believed that everything talked, that trees talked, especially here in the the eastern woodlands where I live. And so there was this notion that you were in constant conversation with the natural world. And there were words for that, for the language that you spoke when you talked to trees. and. There are reported instances of of Europeans who were kidnapped at a young age, raised in Native American circumstances, who had that because that was the language that they knew. If you're kidnapped at three, you speak what the people around you speak mm. and understood that ability. And then one particular woman who was a very famous situation was was brought back to her European family when she was in her 20s against her will, I might add. And she was brought back to her European family and began to lose the ability to talk to the trees because she was speaking English. And we don't have a word for that. So when your language changes and your worldview changes, so much is lost. And I think the more we can reclaim the knowledge that came with language, of a place, mm. the closer we get to being in harmony with where we are. It's really and, interesting what you said there about language. And if we don't have the language, we can lose part of it. Mm. Um, and I, I was just thinking, like when I, when I'm like in session with my clients, I often say things like, "It kind of feels like this, but that's not the word." <laughs> you know, it's like I don't feel like we have. The English has evolved to describe how we are evolving or my experience, not just my personal experience, but other people's experience of the almost like the mystical nature of the world that's starting to come back. 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 It's always been there, but we are starting to connect back in with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that language piece is really important. So with that, what do you where's the intersection between like people claiming their heritage and their stories and the land that they live in, knowing the two might be oceans apart. Um, it's a, it's a dichotomy that I think makes us all a little crazy. <laughs> How do you navigate that then? <laughs> um, it really, it, it's, it's a really fascinating journey. And I think that we have to understand that that integration, that personal integration of ancestry, of DNA, of soul journey, and of mm. place. 
that the integration of those bits and pieces will look very different between every person, but is also probably the only really important journey we take to become whole. And what does that mean to become whole? I think it means to stop denying parts of ourselves and um, and to claim bigger pieces. I think that we keep ourselves small when we don't integrate and mm-hmm. small is safer, but getting bigger, becoming broader, becoming more vast, becoming more available to the mystical, to the magical, to the magic of place, and also to the magic of ancestry and the magic of lineage. There's so much richness there that that is slightly not tangible. Mm. And so uh, when you allow yourself mystery, when you allow yourself that which is undefined, it does feel a little floaty a little bit like we're untethered, but I think in actuality, we become more grounded because we become more full of who we are and more of where we are. Yeah, because I was thinking like that that lineage piece, I think that's where the importance of story comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, we we share stories to teach, to educate, to inspire, to pass on those messages in a, a safe way, you know, we just, we use story for so much. You know, some people would argue we're human because of the fact we can share story, like for all of those, those very, very reasons. But I really do believe there's such an importance of connecting with the land that we live in. Mm-hmm. And so I love working with like the wheel of the year. I live in the UK. It is pretty much picture perfect. Surprise, surprise. And what's interesting to me i have people around the world that also work with me and we we like talk about the like the changing of the lands Mm -hmm. and they're like oh you know that one doesn't quite fit for me yeah and it's like oh you know it's even like i was chatting to someone in new zealand and so they're just going into their winter and they're like yeah but it's not it doesn't really feel autumn yet (laughs) you know and it's like so how can you make that your own and i think that's one of the important things that I don't, I don't know how this fits in, but it's like of when instead of going, oh, yes, it has to look like this. This is what the book tells me should be going on in the environment. It's like, yeah, but what's your own experience of it? Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's what you're saying, isn't it? It's like to find that your own experience of place and story. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, for example, Imok is February 1st or mm-hmm. thereabouts. And, you know, they always talk about it from an, basically from an Irish perspective that, you know, it's the very beginnings of spring. Well, we're mm-hmm. covered in feet of snow here. So, it's you like, know, no, it's not. It's still winter. It's not. <laughs> right. Right. But what does that mean? You know, if I want to marry my Celtic, 50% of my ancestry is Celtic of one variety or another. If I want to marry that Celtic sensibility of how the world tilts throughout the year Mm. and i want to marry it with my experience of living in the hudson valley in new york state somewhere i have to find this connection about hope because to me imbolc is about hope it's about well we lived through the darkest time Mm. and the light is returning and that's a hopeful sign but boy you know when that first little bit of green starts to shoot up we are renewed. And so how can I find within myself, within the wheel of the year, that 
return of hope, that some manifestation that it's actually going to freaking happen, that it's going to come back again. So, you know, to work within those constructs of what is it, not only what did it look like, but what does it mean to a deeper human experience? And I think when we come in rhythm, particularly with those solar and lunar movements, when we come Mm -hmm. into rhythm with those, we find ourselves in natural alignment. So whether, you know, if it's below below freezing here, where in Ireland the lambs are frisking across the meadow, um, it's not nearly as important as the fact that we're halfway between solstice and equinox. And we've got this incredibly emerging sense of possibility. That's what I can hook into because I sure as heck don't see lambs frisking across the meadow here at the beginning of February. (laughs) Right. But I can feel the brightening of spirit that comes with the return of the light. And I can hook into that. So following the wheel of the year is important. But I think when we, when we infuse it with, the solar wisdom and the lunar wisdom Mm. and the wisdom of actually where we are. What does it look like where you are? Then I think you have a fullness. That's that integration I'm talking about where we're not trying to fit some notion of what it's supposed to be. What is it? I think that's the important thing, isn't it? So much of life, I think people are looking for an answer and it's like, that control of like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. And then when it doesn't fit, it feels clunky rather than just going, it just is. Just find your own rhythm throughout it. And it's nice to go, oh, look, February the 1st is spring here. You know, do I see the first sign? So so it's almost like using it as a check-in rather than, Mm -hmm. come on, spring. I mean, I feel a bit like that right now. I'm like, come on, spring, where are you? (laughs) Where's the sunshine? Um, Yes, we do have the lambs. Yes, we do have the flowers. But I'm like, oh, the weather is the weather is wrong <laughs> and it's like no my expectations are wrong the weather yeah. is perfect you know it's yeah. it just is yeah. so how has exploring this way actually no sorry when did you start to explore this what was your experience that brought you into this world of you know entwining stories entwining, and entwiningness um mm. many years ago back when goddess was young i began to explore uh chinese medicine and mm. eastern medicine and one of my mentors oddly enough um my shiatsu sensei was also a native american man and so because of him and because of his influence i was opened up to the world of the native american life that is still very present in the eastern us i mean Many people think, well, you know, the Native American presence is only in the West and it's only on the reservations. And and that's certainly not true. I mean, there's a huge Native American presence everywhere. It's just quiet mm. out of necessity, needed to be quite quiet. And uh, through him, I began to discover that there are these pockets, that there are these places of remembrance from Native American people's all throughout New York and Long Island and and the East Coast and and all the way through the Midlands. And so that was fascinating to me because I'd spent a lot of time thinking about the pockets of heritage that were still existing in Ireland and in Scotland with revival of native languages. But to 
to realize that I was living in the midst of pockets of remembrance, mm. of people holding the mysteries and the secrets and the lineage. That was um, humbling because, wow, I'd looked right past them for a very long time. Um, but also exciting to begin to figure that out. And in my quest to find the goddess, uh, she demanded that I find the land. So the goddess demanded that I move out of the realm of the airy fairy and into the soil uh, mm. where you find her. I find the, the fastest and the deepest. So when I started the spiritual community, the circle that we have here was 22 years ago. We've been holding ceremony and circle for 22 years on this particular piece of land. And when my husband and I bought this land, the land very specifically said that its name was Dunashi, the hill of the fairy folk, the, the fortress of the Shi. So the land itself demanded that I not only be here, but that I be here, fully here and awake to whatever was here. And in this process over the last 22 years, the importance of place, the sacredness of place has become more and more awake in me. A number of years ago with another um, circle sister, I worked with some women in South Africa and in Western Africa to organize a, a group called RISE, the Revivers of Indigenous Spiritualities and Ecosystems. And the impetus for that was meeting a woman, an Indigenous woman from South Africa, who was explaining to us that her peoples and their ceremonies were becoming impossible to maintain because the land was being destroyed. And if mm. the ceremony involves the plants of a land and the plant medicine of a land and the river of a land and the mountain of a place, if the very spirituality itself is so connected to those things and you rip those things away from people, how, there's no matrix. There's no there there for their spirituality to be to be nourished, to flourish. And, and it became clear to us that there's a great amount of fabulous people doing great ecological work. But the marrying of spiritual reclamation and restoration with eco-reclamation hadn't really been seen as fully as we thought it needed to be. So mm. we formed this organization. We have members on every continent. Um, we were able to blend our organization with the URI, the United Religions Initiative, which is a, a wonderful organization in the world doing uh, interreligion, intra-religion work, interfaith and interdenomination work. So it, it, that felt important to me to awaken all of us to the fact that religion slash spirituality slash, slash, uh, slash tradition that those things are good, but they are a bit malnourished if they are taken away from their land of origin. If the, if the land of origin is depleted, and you know, goddess knows we see depletion everywhere we look. Mm. Do you think that's because many of those spiritual practices were first of the land? And I say that like 
in the UK here, someone once said to me, they said, oh, why are there so many yew trees in churchyards? And I said, no, why have so many churches been churches. built next to the yew trees? <laughs> you know, because that's where people used to worship, the, mm -hmm. the you know, in the trees, in the sacred groves, and the yew trees were, you know, held in reverence. And along come Christians, and we're like, oh, well, we'll take these people, and we'll, it's like, I, I've, I've never actually checked this out, but what, someone told me this once. I've got a million years ago, and it's it feels so true. So you know the expression "touch a uh, knock on wood," and someone had once said to me, and it's, it's probably not true, but I just do I do love the story. And it's like the old churches they used to have like a um a um like a wooden woden, and you would touch on woden as you walked into the church. And that's where the, the idea of like touch on wood, just in case, you know, just in case these Christians have got it wrong. And you know, I'm like, even if it's a lie, it's just like such a lovely idea. It's like that I can really feel that's what people would have done, you know, when the religion got taken away from the land and, you know, into buildings, kind of as people moved away from living on the land as much mm -hmm. and into towns and communities that, that started to grow. Um, yeah. So I guess it, I don't know if diluted is the right word, but in the UK, as I'm sure, well, in fact, all older traditions comes from a story of oral storytelling. That's how yeah. we passed on the wisdom, the stories, the seasons, the elements. So something you said, um, I, saw, I saw that you had written down was, and I love this phrase, stories are a mediumship for healing on a planetary level. So where do you now weave the stories in? So we're connecting in with the land. We're starting to learn the language of the land. So where does stories come through as like a mediumship for healing? To me, stories are the way, well, they are the way we teach. I mean, it's very simple. Stories are the way we teach. And what do we choose to teach? I think that matters. Um, my daughter had started a theatrical production company. It was called Motherline Story Project. I'm very proud of my pagan raised daughter. Um, and in the Motherline Story Project, one of the aspects of this production was that people were asked to remember stories they'd heard from their families, from their grandmothers, from their aunties, from their moms no matter how small or insignificant the story was, and then to move into the voice of that ancestor and tell the story as if that ancestor was telling the story. Not that you're remembering the story, but that you're mm -hmm. telling the story. And what was always really interesting is that those stories, those little, you know, those, that bits of family lore, that whatever, that come down, those stories were told for a reason. People didn't just blather. They told stories because they were trying to teach their children something really important, something that might save their lives, something mm -hmm. that might give them a sense of belonging or safety that would anchor them to the values that people thought mattered. And so stories as a mediumship for teaching, that's really clear. But I think that the world is so out of balance and most of us are so disconnected from the land we live in, from the people we come from, from the old values, whatever the hell that is, um, that we feel uh, untethered. So stories as a mediumship for healing means to me that what we choose to tell 
is a way of demonstrating a way to be a better human. And if we can be better humans, we can be better stewards of the land and we can be better citizens of the planet. So I think to me, it really matters which stories we choose to tell. What gets repeated? And it's certainly in a 24-hour news cycle, what gets repeated is, you know, sex sells, you lead with the blood, you know, the the turmoil, the chaos, the discontent, the disconnect. Those are the things that get repeated in a 24-hour news cycle. So how do we balance that? How do we find a way to connect back to what's good about us? Because if we can't remember what's good about us, there is no hope for the planet. The planet is relying on us to to remember how to be in balance with her. And so I think it matters what we choose to tell, which stories we choose to tell. That's why in the books that I write, I really want people to remember what it might have been like in a pre-patriarchal time in a time when the divine feminine was honored and revered, in a time where women were honored. I mean, you know, the world's wackadoodle, and I don't necessarily want to take us down a political rabbit hole, but certainly in the United States, the state of women is precarious. So how do you balance that personally in your daily life? How do you bring in the land? How do you bring in the stories? Because we do have to live in the world that we live in. And like you say, <laughs> wackadoodle has a pretty cool, isn't a very British word, you know, but it sums up, I think, you know, the, the feelings of precariousness of, oh, yeah. I mean, we can look around the world and just feel mortified by some mm. of the things that happen. And yet being in that energy doesn't allow us to participate and create change at any level. So how do you find that balance through like the land, through stories? What are your practices that allow you to keep finding that connection? And, and you know, it seems to me that your work is really about contributing to community as well. You know, whether it's your own land, whether it's, you know, the, the bigger projects you're involved in. So how do you find that balance? What, what are your practices to do that? Well, I've always been deeply involved in maintaining, building and maintaining this spiritual community here. Uh, It's called Triple Spiral of Dunashi. And and that was a big focus for about 20 years of creating ritual and ceremony, of Mm -hmm. maintaining the connections, of training groups of priestesses, of having first moon ceremonies and rites of passage for the young boys and um, birthing and, and death ceremonies. It was very, very important to me to build this and magnetize this community, bring people together, help people remember the old ways in whatever ways felt truly authentic now. Just recreating, you know, druids running through the woods isn't very helpful to us since we do have to get back in our cars and go and go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So how do we do that? How do we maintain some connection to what was of value in the past and let it be pertinent? Let it be germane right now. So that was a big focus for me for about 20 years. And then COVID happened. The great planetary pause button mm. came about. And so everything I thought I knew about how I constructed my life 
very quickly fell apart because we couldn't get together. We couldn't mm-hmm. be together. We couldn't, um, you know, I didn't have 50 people at a Beltane ceremony. I had five of us in the front yard tying Clutie rags to my Rowan tree. So um, everything that I thought, and I think this is true of so many of us, everything we thought we knew fell apart during COVID, which was a fabulous opportunity to take a look at things and figure out what we wanted to pick up again. We got a chance to put so many things down that we thought we had to carry the regular pace of our lives. We got to put that down and figure out what we were going to carry again. Uh, To me, that's meant a greatly changed personal schedule. My uh, acupuncture practice is much smaller and more select. Uh, My time in my garden has amplified tenfold. Uh, We're very slowly building back meeting in person and having ceremony in person. But I don't feel the same manic need to make it happen. I'm letting things happen much more than I used to. So to me, the the practice has shifted dramatically in the last three years. And it's become much less about doing and much more about being. And maybe there's a lesson for other people in that, um, you know, the old adage of less is more, I think can be true. It was always really important to me to demonstrate my value by producing Mm. whatever that meant by producing in my my private practice or in my career you know the lines on the cv the way how many people could i get to come to ceremony you know those sort of outside metrics were really really important and um, when you go through a period of time where none of that can happen and you question your own value as a human on the planet you have to go back in and decide what value do I feel to myself and to my immediate family, to my immediate community? And so it's become less about doing and more about being. Um, my my personal day, my personal practice is much more balanced now than it ever was between time in the garden, time in the woods. I live right across the road from a, a state park, the second largest state park in the state of New York. 22,000 acres. I live right across the street. So I'm surrounded by woods and by mountains. And I'm letting that in, in a way that I didn't before. I was always very busy, Mm. very, 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 very busy. And I sort of knew these things were here. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's fabulous. I live in the woods. Yay. Um, But to actually (laughs) live in the woods was something I hadn't allowed myself. And the universe demanded that that be made clear to me. So I write every day, I garden when nature allows on a daily uh, basis, I meditate in my way. I'm not a sit-down meditator, I'm a a fuss-about meditator. (laughs) Uh, I meditate while I wash the dishes or while I feed the dogs or whatever it is. I think it's interesting what you were saying then is like even bringing it back to story it's like who are you when you can't do what you've always identified mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. you know when you've had that taken away because we do you know that's the story like you said earlier the, the great con is like we all have created stories about like who we are or where we live or mm-hmm. claiming those things and it's like oh yes i'm a priestess and to priestess it looks like this 
and I gather right. community and I'm successful because of the numbers or the yeah. practice or the outcomes. And again, they're all just stories that we tell ourselves. And when we had those stripped away, it's like, who are you? Mm-hmm. When those things that you identify as making you, you being in nature, holding ceremony, you can't do anymore. Yeah, and that for it. me was one of the biggest things of mm-hmm. COVID. I mean, I was very lucky that you know, where I happened to live. It wasn't as though I was in a one-bed apartment, never allowed to go out, never having any fresh air. You know, I'm surrounded with my own garden. So, you know, it's very spacious where I am. So, you know, I feel very, very extra privileged to to experience Mm -hmm. COVID in that way. But even so, it was still like, gosh, who am I if I'm not hanging out with the trees all day? You know, who am I if I'm not doing all these massive hikes in nature and connecting to everything and I'm suddenly at home? And I just remember having this really, I mean, obviously I knew it wouldn't last forever because nothing actually lasts forever. Um, but I just had the moment one day and it was like, if this was the, if this was your life for the rest of your life and you were like never allowed out to see anyone ever again, I live with my family again. So, you know, I had people around me, but it was just like, oh yeah, who am I? Who am I if I could never express myself in the ways I've been so used to expressing? Mm. And it's all just stories, aren't they? All Mm. those stories just falling away. Yes. And so many women that I knew that I was in connection with. I mean, thank God us for Zoom, right? Uh, Where where would we have been? We'd all be stark (laughs) raving mad without Zoom. Thank you. Um, But so many women I knew during the period of the pandemic and lockdown were saying, I don't feel like myself. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because it is, it was a story. Mm. The persona, the lives we led, they were stories. And to be able to dissect that, to peel it away, to decide what's really a value and Mm. who the hell am I underneath? And actually, what do I value? Yes. Yes. What do I value? Not what other people have told me I'm supposed to value, but what do I value? That was illuminating and and a real gift. Mm. One of the one of the bright spots of COVID was that gift. Because I think again, when we talked about like carrying the lineage of story, there is there is a great like wistful eye about that, and we can be like, oh, the stories of old, and yet there is great truth in that, and they have great power. But I also think it can also be very limiting because mm-hmm. then it's like, oh that's what success looks like, or that's how I should be living my life, or, oh, I love how Gina's living her life. That's what I should do. And it's like, well, maybe, but maybe maybe not. (laughs) Maybe there's something else. And I often think about the energy of loyalty. We can feel loyal to a particular Mm -hmm. family story or story Mm -hmm. of origin or to a land. And it's like, but maybe that doesn't help us be loyal to ourselves. And the second we try and step away from like breaking away from an old family story, whatever that may be, we can feel disloyal and we don't like disloyal people. So then we have like the internal um, cognitive dissonance where it's like, oh, but I'm a good person. (laughs) I don't want to be disloyal. And so then we can find ourselves going back to old patterns, which I also think is like stories. They're just, oh, they're everywhere, aren't they? They're so important. And I think it's about like you said earlier, it's like choosing your stories, yes. choosing the ones yeah. you want to be loyal to, choosing the ones that you're actually going to pass on. Because that's the thing about stories, aren't they? We share 
this podcast, yeah. have all yeah. these incredible people on, and we share stories about life, about magic, about our own experiences. Some of it will resonate for some people. Some of it, I have many, 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 many emails going, oh my God, those were the words I've been looking for. And I'm sure some people are just like, yeah, that's not me, but that's as it should be. Exactly. That's yeah. as it should be. It shouldn't be a one size fits all. Oh, in my yeah. um, in my study of classical Chinese medicine, I had a great privilege of having a mentor and uh, his name is Jeffrey Yuan, and he is the 88th generation of his lineage. He's a Taoist priest, yeah. the 88th generation. So the mind boggles, right? Mm-hmm. 88 generations of wisdom passed down. Yeah, like how know, many hundreds and hundreds of years right. is that? Yeah. I mean, most of us, you know, when you ask people, can you list your ancestors? Most people can maybe go back two generations. Mm. Maybe they know their great grandparents' names. Maybe they don't. Yeah. Uh, certainly in, you know, in America, I find that that's true because um, the cemetery isn't right next door for most of us. We, you know, they moved around a bit. But for Jeffrey, it's 88 generations of a lineage that he carries. And part of his practice, part of the classical Chinese medical tradition, the Taoist tradition, is still very rooted in mysticism, in spirituality, mm-hmm. and in magic. Not like the more modern Chinese medicine where that Mao had to scrub all the mysticism out of, but you know, the deep old stuff, which is why I resonated with him and why mm-hmm. I studied with him for 30 years. But one of the aspects that he talks about are the stories, the stories that are told within families. And you can link this to physical ailments. You know, uh, all the men in my family have had heart trouble. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, well, my Paving mother- the way had... now, then, aren't you? <laughs> right, right, right. So, mm. so, therefore, I will. Or, you know, the women in my family all had a really rough time in menopause. Therefore, I will. The identification with story- that supersedes personal experience. And that's yeah. what you're talking about. You know, it's, it's the stories. If we want to break free from them, we can feel like we are um, not only being disloyal, but disrespectful mm. to the people that came before and to their lived experience. And so part of what Jeffrey talks about with some of these classical protocols is, well, you just change the story. Mm. You just change your just change your story. So if the women in your family all had a horrible time with menopause, that's their story. It's not your story. So change your story. Yeah, I think that that ripples out then. You know, that ripples out through our lived experience and we become able to live our life. I completely agree with that. It is about changing stories. But I also think there's that, for example, the menopause piece. If you also have that lived experience, it connects you to your community. It connects you to your family. You know, there is, there has been great merit and very interesting studies done on the, like the power of gossip, you know, of that energy of connection, of feeling part of that. So if you suddenly sail through menopause when all of the other women in your family are like, you know, heat exhausted sweating and you know just feeling awful and you're like oh this is brilliant suddenly you're separate from them you don't have that link do you now of course there's many other ways to link with that but i think i i'm a huge you know so important like we change our own stories and create our own stories but we also have to remember that comes at a cost and that cost is 
you can't connect with that person in that particular way. And I think when we understand that, it allows us to step away with greater power and find a different way to connect with those people. That's not over hot flushes or cravings or, you know, whatever it is. But I think, again, it's like having that awareness, isn't it? Because it's like we know what to do. (laughs) We have enough information in the world, but some it's like knowing why we don't always do it. It's like having that kindness and compassion with ourselves. Mm, true. So, yeah. Kindness and compassion. Those are great friends to walk with. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, using the menopause story again, frequently we find the way to connect and come into alignment with people through shared misery. Mm, we commiserate, right? Commiserate. Yeah. We come together with misery. And that menopause as a transition as a liminal space as a a zone in which we can become something different is important and i think that over time or maybe this has always been true the people who are diving for the misery level you know we find a way to to come into alignment with that to come into resonance with that mm. and we share that but there is a more elevated aspect of that transition that perhaps doesn't get the same time on the stage. And so I'm trying, I'm an advocate for age. I love it. Right, right. (laughs) I'm I'm a crone. I'm technically a crone. I wanted to be a crone for so long before I Mm. got to be one. I was so excited. But and aging is a privilege not given to all. But um but I guess what I'm saying is that by changing the story, by unplugging from the required misery. That frequently family stories in particular, but national stories. National stories are big on joint misery. And, you know, that there's pride in how miserable it was and what we all lived through and what everybody got through together. And there's this pride in this sort of sense of chuffishness about joint misery. And and while it is important to remember what people lived through and to figure out how they did it and what qualities of character helped them live through it, while those things are important, I think focusing on shared, joint, national, communal, familial misery keeps us in this lower vibration place where we miss the, the bigger lessons, maybe. Maybe we miss the, the enlightened peace of how to get through this. So so another example is I've been doing all this lineage study because I had time during COVID. And I discovered that my mother's side of the family are all uh, descended from these early, early, early Quebecois natives. So these are people who came from France in the 1640s. And some of them were fur trappers and some of them were soldiers, but a number of them. I have eight great grandmothers who were what's called daughters of the king. Now, that sounds very grand. But what that really meant was that the king decided that they needed women in New France. (laughs) They needed women as civilizing forces. So how are they going to talk women into going to New France? Well, there are two versions of the story. Sorry, what's New France? It's what is now Canada. So um, how are you going to talk women into doing this? You know, it's crazy. So there are two versions of the story. One is that women, young girls of good repute were uh, 
were sponsored by their parish priests and were chosen for this program. Uh, the other is that these were young women who were either prostitutes or thieves or something else and were given this choice. You can go to jail or you can go to New France, which seems more likely to me, but you know, who knows? So these young women were given a dowry by the King of France, meaning a couple bolts of cloth, some needles and pins, mm. and put on these rickety little boats and shipped to what is now Canada. Now, imagine this in the 1640s, the terror of that, of leaving everything you know. You must be pretty miserable to make this choice in the first place. But, you know, a, a lot of people don't survive that transatlantic journey. Mm. But they would stagger off of these rickety little boats, right? I'm envisioning them staggering off these rickety little boats after months of seasickness and deprivation. And they land in Canada. Now, the big advantage for these women was that they were allowed to choose their husbands. They had this, this was their power, their sovereignty. Okay, great. So you land in New France and you get to pick between a bunch of fur trappers who haven't bathed in years and some uh, French soldiers who may also not have bathed in years. So this is your the field to pick from, right? And then you have to live through a Canadian winter. And then you have to keep living through Canadian winters. And you have to bear children and feed these children and survive through Canadian winters. Now, if any of your listeners have ever been in Canada in the winter, they know what I'm talking about. It's freaking miserable. It's cold. It's dark. It's life-sucking. So I have all of this big chunk of my ancestry who are these plucky women who managed to make this choice and land here and survive. Now, to me, that's inspirational because that means somewhere within my DNA, are resources that I can draw upon. Are These are the stories that I choose to pass forward. But these are women of enormous resource and strength and determination and stubbornness who managed to get through horrible circumstances and survive and raise families and hopefully be kind to their families mm-hmm. in the process. Um, so those are stories that I think are of value. But the misery piece of that also gets passed down, that life is uh, dreary, that um, the men will fail you. That was an important part of the mother line story for me, that men will fail you, um, which I choose to not believe. Mm. So, you know, I'm taking the pieces of the stories that I think lift me up, that fill me, that inspire me and and give me wisdom about how to get through the days the years and choosing to unplug from the pieces of the stories that i think are handicaps yeah so again it's you know what stories do we choose to say what are we, what are we choosing to tell i think it makes a big difference so if we go back round to where we started this conversation with the big con mm-hmm. how do people I was about to say uncon themselves, but <laughs> you know, how do people kind of like guard against that energy and even start to like dismantle and unlearn those practices within themselves that maybe, like you say, we just pick up these things subconsciously mm-hmm. and it's just something that we do because we're surrounded by other people that are doing the same thing. And that's what we, that's where we learn from, particularly as like young, malleable children. It's like we just 
we just learn and consume everything around us and think that's normal. So mm-hmm. if someone's there going, oh my God, am I? Am I conning myself? Where do you recommend people start like looking at themselves or their behaviours to start unravelling that con- connery-ishness? <laughs> Oh, it's interesting. And it seems to be a big piece of our national conversation these days, too, about examining privilege, about um, acknowledging the privileges of white appearance, of race, of lineage, of class. Um, We like to, in America, think we're not a classist society. And of course, that's bullshit. Um, Of course, we are. And um, so, you know, looking at those constructs, which we know to be false. We know race is a false construct. We know that class is an externally applied construct and doesn't really mean people have greater value if they are of one class Mm. than of another. We know these things are false. But uh, for those of us who had the benefit of some of those privileges, it can be quite uncomfortable to examine them. So the the examination of privilege is... um, and can be, and will be, and should be an uncomfortable process. We owe that to the people around us to examine our privilege. And then, you know, pay homage to those upon whose shoulders you stand, whether it's your ancestors or the people whose land was stolen or uh, the people whose labor was stolen. Um, I think it's really important to pay homage to those things. But then, you know, guilt is a heavy, heavy, heavy thing. And having been raised as a Catholic, a cradle Catholic, um, I know from guilt. I know Mm. about guilt. And I could write a treatise on guilt, um, coming, starting with original sin and going all the way through, you know, Eve and the whole Meshuggah mess. So I think guilt is a poison. I think the uncomfortableness of examining privilege of figuring out who we are and why we get to be here is huge and important. Um, And then what do you do with that? Being guilty about it for more than 10 seconds is useless. It doesn't help. It doesn't add to the human condition. It only perhaps is self-indulgent. So guilt is not useful. Um, One of the things that, in, in fact, we were working on this last night in our full moon ritual is you know, we give a lot of thought and credence to seeds, to the seeds that we plant, to the things we want to create, to the to the the bits of us that we germinate and bring forth. But we don't give nearly enough credence or focus, I think, on the aspect of soil, of where we're planted, of what the soil is of our lives. And that can be the, the literal soil of your garden, of your place, of your land. But it also can be the emotional soil. What do you live in? What emotional mm. soil are you living in? What intellectual soil are you living in? And then the question is, how do I make that soil better? It's clear as a gardener, you know what to do. You know how to augment the soil. You add the compost, you add the manure, you do whatever it is to augment the soil to make it better. But what do we do to augment, to amend the soil of all the other aspects, all the other circles of our lives? How can I today make the emotional soil of my life better? How can I enrich it? How can I enliven it, energize it? How can I enliven and energize my intellectual soil? So I think looking at where we live 
not just ourselves, but where we live, the matrix that we're supposedly flourishing in, I think giving as much energy to how do, what contribution can I make to the mm. soil that I live in? And, and all of those things are life affirming. If your actions are not life affirming, don't bother. <laughs> think about it. Yeah, yeah. Right. If this action I'm taking, this conversation we're having, having, I'm hoping that it is life affirming. I'm hoping that you and I walk away from this feeling enlivened and enriched and energized, but I'm hoping that everybody who listens to it finds something in it that will enliven and enrich the soil they float in, the let they live in, that they flourish mm. in. So, but why bother doing anything else? So if we examine our actions, our thoughts, our spiritual practices, our relationships, our jobs, um, the way we steward our land, if we examine all of those from the aspect of not only what am I in it, but what am I doing to contribute to the soil around me, then I think we're on the process of reconnecting and healing. And love, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. And it's just, you know, why do anything else? I love the idea of collective soil. <laughs> it's just, right. I was like, I always talk in terms of like nature and harvest cycles and, but I'm not really a gardener. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm just like, Ooh, I, you know, I have plants, I have a garden, but I wouldn't consider myself a gardener. Um, but I do, I love that idea of, I, I was um, interviewing someone the other day and we were talking about the seasons and the cycles and she talked, she just used the phrase digestion. And I was like, oh my gosh, of course that's what harvest is. It's like that ability to digest and, mm -hmm. you know, nourish yourself with what's good and excrete the rest. And I've just had that same kind of like, oh, of course, soil. You know, I talk in terms of environments and I do talk about, oh, the soil, but not really like the collective soil. Yeah. It's like, what are you giving to the collective? You know, are you spewing poison, right. which, you know, is not going to be very good for the collective anything, whether it's yeah. planetary, um, you know, or community or worldly. But actually, what are you contributing to the soil? Are you giving it the nitrogen? Are you giving it the manure? And it doesn't mean it all has to be great because, you know, manure is basically shit. And it's like, but it, it's but it's been digested. It's been dealt with and then we can take the nutrients from it it's not anything else you know it's not diarrhea yeah. right. <laughs> it's like and, and just right. adding and, and that the, idea of collective the soil. important piece of that to me is that i'm trying to follow this train of thought but that that what we contribute doesn't need to be purely pie in the sky. Everything's mm. great. I only have positive thoughts. I'm only going to elevate myself with positive affirmations. You know, that's just as much a trap as being mired in misery. You mm. know, there's, there's, it's only good. It's only light. It's only perfect. And life is shitty, sucky, swirly, sucky hellhole. You know, there are those life two. Is both. <laughs> For sure. And both <laughs> and all of it. And. Yeah. It has to be all of it. I mean, if we even look at the natural cycles of life, you know, the the rising of new life in the spring and maturation and harvest and death and mm. decay and composting and it turns around again. And so I'm not suggesting that we only nourish the soil with um, rainbows and unicorns. I'm I'm suggesting that we take all of what is and we 
think about how do I make this better? And I even think it's, you know, even going back from that, it's just knowing that whatever you do, say, you know, whatever you do, you are responsible for what you put out into the world. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, that can be rainbow some days and it can be feeling a bit glum another day and it's welcome, but take responsibility for it. Don't just fall into that's just the way it's already always been done. Mm-hmm. That's just my story. It's like, is that the story you want to contribute to the soil, to the collective, to whatever language it is? And it's, it does, it, as always, it comes back to personal responsibility, doesn't it? It's like we get to choose how we show up. And if we are feeling in that glum energy and you're like, but you don't understand, Rebecca, if you had my situation, it's like, yes, but you can still ask for the support you still can reach out and no one's saying don't have those feelings or don't you know don't contribute in that way but know that that is how you're showing up and that does have an impact on other people yes of course people can still get the support and equally the other end of the spectrum too if you are rainbowing everywhere it's like yeah maybe you do want to share that with as many people as you can just to give them a a little bit of it or maybe you want to nourish it and enjoy it for yourself because that's something i don't think we do enough of is like truly savor our own flavor you know we're very good at giving it away to other people or being there to support other people but it's okay just to take a moment to go you know what i just want this for a moment and then we can go out and share afterwards right isn't it that interesting balance between contributing to the greater Mm. whatever and that notion that things have gotten painted as selfish if you if you savor it Mm. if you and and there is this interesting sort of new age balance between self-focus and selfishness right i mean there is there is the the tipping point there of of uh how much navel gazing can one do um before it sneaks down the line of being narcissistic yeah or helpful (laughs) and yeah and really how much self-work do, do any of us need probably less than the experts tell us and probably more than society mm. says we should do so there's this interesting balance between self-interest and selfishness and i think um i don't know if you know this is a generalization but the certainly the climate that i grew up in um women in particular were asked to be very serving to their families serving Mm. to their communities not demanding or requiring things for themselves and um and you see the pathology that emerges from that i mean we see the pathology of what patriarchy has demanded of women uh, and it's not sustainable we know that that has to shift we know that the world and the and the energy of the planet is shifting and we we can contribute to that by by saying, yes, I can take this for myself. I can mm. love this bit of whatever for myself. I don't have to immediately run out and give it away. But then then it is a beautiful thing. And so how do I nurture my soil, whether it's internal soil or external soil? I think that there has to be that constant dialogue back and forth between personal lived experience and the fact that we live in community, that we are of a communal nature and we are not living alone and mm-hmm. certainly uh, cannot survive alone. So how do we balance those things? It's an interesting dialogue. And I think even just 
asking the question you know people often say to me like oh my god am I doing it right and I'm like the very fact that you're even considering it (laughs) is telling me that you know this is not overly unhealthy right now you know the very fact that you're like oh how much do I have for this or how much do I give to community and I I kind of like half joking but with a lot of truth I always say you have to be full of yourself and I love saying that because it's very un-British. But what I mean by <laughs> but what but what I mean by that, you know, haha, people telling you to be small, um, is like you have to know yourself because yeah. if you are depleted, exhausted, what you give to community is frustration, resentment, and bitterness. Whereas yeah. if you are rested, nourished, and full, not by taking away from everyone else, but knowing your needs are as important as everyone else's. It's like from that place, you give from kindness and generosity. And if nothing else, that's nicer to give, but it's also nicer to receive. So yes, people are like, oh, but I don't want to be selfish. But it's like, we should be self-fullness. You know, it's like we should be full of ourselves because Uh having a self is what makes you incredible. It's what makes you you. It's what makes everybody bring all of their magic to the world because I personally don't want to live in a world where everyone is a monocrop. I want to live in like the wilds, <laughs> the wild meadows, the country gardens, mm-hmm. where everyone is contributing to their part. And some of them I won't like, and that's okay. You know, I'm not a fan of that plant over there. No problem. It can do its own thing. But I tell you what, fully loving on those ones over there, you know, and I think that's part of the gloriousness of life. And of course, Absolutely, that's a story I tell myself. But the Mm. other story, it's like, I want to choose that though. That is a story where I want to celebrate other people and, you know, who they are and for them to be rest and nourished (laughs) because I want good good soil. And I think it's interesting that we're having this conversation about like the soils being depleted um, and the work and spiritually people are being depleted because we, everything is a reflection, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, we are creatures. You know, we are creatures of this planet. <laughs> creatures and with clothes on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. How weird is that? And um, every step we take away from that truth means that we're less in touch with the magic of where we are, of the mm. world, and uh, the magic of existence. So, what does that mean? I mean, I had the privilege of living in, in the countryside and surrounded by woods and and I have that privilege. So I have access to magic. Do I take it all the time? Probably not. You know. Um, but I have access to it. But every step away from nature that we take as a collective society, as a planetary movement, um, means that we're we have less and less access to the magic of existence. And, and there comes that spiritual depletion. Depletion. There comes that sense of uh, malnourishment that so many people have in their spirituality, whether it's an organized religion or whether they're on their own private solo journey. And so what does that mean? I mean, how do we get to magic if we don't have... 22,000 acres across Mm. the road in which to go hiking. And I think it can be as simple as elemental magic. It can be as simple as, you know, staring into a candle flame. It can be as simple as having a a pot of rosemary on your window ledge. It can be as simple as 
scrying into a bowl of water. I mean, it, we don't have to. I think sometimes we think that if we're not fully immersed, if we're all not Wendell Berry or, you know, John Muir hiking forever, that that we're not doing it right, that we're not connecting, that mm. we're not uh, accessing the natural world. But the natural world is composed of elements. You can touch those elements anywhere you are. You can just breathe and you're like, oh, yeah, look. I'm elemental myself. I think the magic of that. that. That bringing that magical awareness to every day really is about just being curious and being aware. I mean, I had this the other day. I interviewed someone about metal magic, uh, Sam Thompson, and he was talking about metal magic. I'd never really thought about metal magic before. Love working with the elements, of course, and I hadn't really thought about it. And all the way through, I was always looking around my world, my office, and I was like, how's metal? Oh my God, my cauldrons. Oh my God, my charms. Oh my God. And suddenly, all I just, by bringing my attention to it, it was suddenly everywhere. And I think it's the same with magic, isn't it? We don't need, I suppose we don't need nature. Yes, we do. We do need nature. But we don't need to be walking or hiking in nature every day. We don't need to be doing all the things that maybe we are told that we should do or that we see on Instagram and aspire to be living like. It's like the very act of you being yourself is a magical act in itself, bringing your awareness to how the elements show up, how synchronicities appear in your life. Just that curiosity, because I think once you open the door, just to be curious, to be curious about the stories that you're telling yourself, to be curious of the stories of, of the land, um, just brings up a whole world of magic. And it, sorry, it, it just reminded me, one of the best things I think you can do to connect with your land is to go to your local library and find the the folklore of your area. Mm. There is so much magic and wisdom. You know, the books that are written by, you know, that that guy down the road that no one, you don't really know who he is. But then you read the folklore of the land and you're like, you'll never look at that hill again or that river again. Because you're like, oh, it has a land, it has a spirit, it has a whole story around it. So yeah, sorry, that just that just uh, remembered an activity we did in our group. And it was like, where I live, I was like, oh, there's not really that much going on where I am. Um, brought a, the, the book of someone had compiled the history of the area that I live in. It was like nearly two inches thick. And where I am, you know, there's like 50 houses at most. And I was like, but the richness of the land, the history, who bought and sold it, what came before it, who invaded it when, you know, over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years was fascinating. And it gave mm. me a really different insight into the land. And I think it's because I live next door to Wales and it's like, oh, yeah, Wales is one with all the myth. <laughs> You know, as if it stopped, as if the right. story stopped in the imaginary boundary that was created all those years ago. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's just, I think it just gives you a local libraries usually have those kind of books or the, well, here in the UK, that's for true. That's for true. Or post offices. Post offices usually mm. have, in the, well, in the UK, like folklore books of the local village and community or surrounding areas. So that's, I think that's a great place to start to like reconnecting with the, idea of spirit land and story oh that's a that's wonderful i love that and it, it's very true and i think sometimes in the states we think well that's only true in europe it's only true mm. you know in in england or in, in ireland or something that the land is rich and magical but of course that's not true it's it's magical here as well and i heard a story the other day um i live at the very edge of 
a, a mountain range. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see them right out the window. And when European colonizers came, the native peoples who lived here kept getting pushed, as native peoples do, kept getting pushed farther and farther away. And many of them, I would say, you know, 90% of them were driven farther west. So very near me, there's a little town called Muncie, M-O-N-S-E-Y. And then in Pennsylvania, there's a town called Muncie, M-U-N-S-E-Y. And then in Indiana, where I was born, there's a town called Muncie, M-U-N-C-I-E, because the poor Muncies kept getting, the Ramapo Muncies, Lenapes kept getting moved farther Mm. and farther west. And everywhere they landed, eventually the name stuck. But there were remnants of those people who stayed up in the hills. And uh, some of them then, their population was augmented by escaped slaves and by indentured servants who were released from their servitude and had nothing and you know staggered up into the hills. So it's a very interesting cultural grouping that still they still live up in the yeah. hills. Boy. And one of the old stories is that when a when a boy became a man, that his father would take him from the mountains and they would walk to the river, the Hudson River, which is about a total of 15 miles. I mean, I'm not talking a huge distance, right? Mm. They would take the journey from the mountains to the river. And this father would say, there it is. There's the edge of the world. We're done. And they would turn and go back. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was it. You know, this is where we used to live. We used to live at the river and we don't anymore. So this is the edge of the world. And we turn and we go back. And to me, just imagining people tromping across what is now my front lawn, making that Mm. trip to the river, having the edge of the world defined right there, and then having them tromp back up into the mountains up here is very rich. That's magical. That's fabulously ghostly. I love that Mm. story. So you're right. Everywhere we are, there is this rich folklore, and not a lot of it got written down here from very yeah. long ago, but it's there. And if you tap into the energies of it, the stories will tell themselves. You know, yeah. you don't actually need the folklore books. They're lovely to have and they're fun, but the energy of the land can tell you that too. I also think that sometimes, particularly in the society we live in, we want big, brave, bold, bedacious stories. But actually, the story of walking 15 miles and back again it's hugely powerful. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of those stories get lost because they're not very exciting to tell because we want the excitement and the drama that we get from like the films and Hollywood mm-hmm. and Bollywood and places. And it's like the simplicity sometimes. We overlook the simplicity sometimes, but I always feel there's so much magic in what appears simple and the pause and the moment and just the sharing like you say, of just listening to the land, mm. of being curious. I wonder, mm. I wonder if I could imagine this land, this river, this tree could talk, what do I imagine it would say to me? Because people often say that to me, but Rebecca, what if I'm imagining it? It's like, so what if you are? It's a good place to start a conversation <laughs> with said tree, land, river, rose, or whatever it may be. And also, what is imagining? What does that mean? Like, why is that any less valid? Or real. Yeah. Mm. Why well, is we know it's real because our yeah. bodies respond as if it is real. Exactly. So, it so is why is real. that less real 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we we in in the teaching of Chinese medicine over the years, I, I taught several different forms of Asian body work, shiatsu and going on various things. And so what you're asking people to do is feel chi. Mm. All right. Well, what's chi? You know, there's always that question. It's life force. Okay. Well, is it a real thing? Well, I can't put it in a test tube, but it's a real thing. Okay. But how do you want me to feel it? Well, I want you to let yourself feel it. But how do I know I'm really feeling it? Well, if you think you're really feeling it, you're really feeling it. But how do I know for sure? Mm. You know, these conversations were so mired in, uh, Am I doing it right? Is it that idea of certainty? Right. And also, if it's not measurable, measurable by what standard? By what metric? By my lived experience? By my sensation? I think that's pretty damn valid Mm. that my lived experience and my my register of sensations are real. But to give people power, to give them the authority to say, I feel it, therefore it is is a really great tool. And then, of course, there is the flip side, which we see a lot of, is I feel it, therefore it must be true. Mm. And I think that's dangerous. You know, yeah. I feel it, therefore it's real. That I'm I'm totally behind. But I feel it, therefore it's true. I mean, certainly in this country, we've seen played out over the last six, seven years, that notion of a lot of people feeling things and therefore saying they must be true. Um, and that's dangerous. So it's an, again, it's an interesting dialogue. Yeah. Between, between real and true. Between real and true. Yeah. And I, I think the way we navigate this at the moment, because I certainly don't have the answers, is just to remain curious yeah. to our own stories, to our own experiences, to the feedback from others. Yeah. And kind, <laughs> kind to yes. ourselves. Curious yeah. and kind and also, uh, open to be wrong. Mm. I think if we can be, in addition to being curious, can I also be available to the possibility that I'm not right? Yeah. I think that's huge. Because we feel safer in rightness. In well, uncertainty, isn't it? Uncertainty, like, yeah, what, absolutely. What is? What is certain? <laughs> well, not too much. Not much. Mm. I mean, you know, if anything, the last few years have demonstrated to us that everything we thought was was damn certain wasn't. Yeah. And if the entire world can go on pause. And there was that notion of this, well, we did think this won't last forever, but maybe it will last forever. Maybe this is the new normal. Maybe this is the way life on this planet continues. Um, there was that as a very real possibility. And uh, I hope it shook us all up. I hope it made us aware of the fragility of the instability of what we think we know, because then you can be truly curious. Mm. You know, each step you take, what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? Instead of plowing ahead, thinking we're absolutely certain. You know, I they think, always say that you make a plan and the goddess laughs. Well, you know, <laughs> true. I think one thing that's been very true for my life is like when I first started, I practiced therapy called kinesiology for like 20 something years ago. And uh, when I learned it, you know, it's based on like Chinese medicine and meridians and energy work. And I was like, Oh my God, this is going to save the world. It's like, I can do anything. 
And then very, very quickly, it's like, oh, I know nothing. And 20 years later, it's like, I know even less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, the, it's like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. And it's like, oh my goodness. And I always feel, it's like, well, of course I, I know so much more than 20 years ago, but it's like, there's even more to know now. Um, just because as your own awareness grows of a, of a subject, of a topic, you suddenly realize where all the gaps are too. And it's like, you can't ever possibly know everything about all of the things. And it's, I think it's like, it's like that hum. It's again, it's all about finding the balance between the dichotomies, isn't it? Of like owning your knowledge, but also mm. knowing that you know nothing as well. <laughs> because Absolutely. the people that know everything is like, oh, maybe just, yeah. I think it's that's very, very breath. true. I mean, <laughs> always, always avoid the people who tell you they know all the answers. I think that's one of the truisms of life. Have a chat with my eight-year-old. I know, I know, mummy, I know. And I'm like, most dangerous words in the world, my darling, are the words I know. (laughs) It's like, it just shuts everything down. Well, Well, I think if if we avoid all the people, if we we avoid the people who say they know, who have the answers, Mm. um, and we avoid the people who actually want power, you know, if we can avoid those two groups, I think we're much more better. Much better. <laughs> and we find our own power, find our own truth, rather than having right. it from outside of ourselves. Absolutely. And then let those people who don't really want to be in charge, but we know they have the gifts to be in charge. So let them be in charge for a bit and, and let the people who are humble in their lack of knowledge lead us into deeper knowledge. I think those things. I mean, that is the privilege of aging, right? As you learn how much you don't know. So let those people. And, and to, I think there's this interesting thing to this youth fixation in our culture where mm-hmm. if it's young, if it's new, it's better. And I think we've lost touch with the wisdom of the elder yeah, and uh, leaning on the wisdom of the elder and simultaneously needing to question the wisdom of the stated, of what is, of what always has been. And again, it's that interesting dialogue, that interesting tussle between honoring the wisdom that has been accrued and questioning the way things are being done because they've always been done that way. Yeah. Oh, to be a paradoxical human. <laughs> well, it's, the old, you know, it's the old pot roast story, right? The pot roast story of the young bride who is cooking dinner for her husband and she calls her mom and she says, mom, how do we make the pot roast? And her mom says, well, you cut the end off of the roast and you put it in the pan. She says, why do we do that? She says, well, that's the way your grandma taught me. Well, let's call grandma. Grandma, you know, how do you make pot roast? Well, you cut the end off the roast and you put it in the pan. Well, why do we do that? Well, that's the way my mother taught me. Well, let's call great grandma. We call great grandma. Great grandma, why do you cut the end off the pot roast? Because I had a smaller pan. (laughs) you know so the way things are done usually derived from necessity not necessarily what is still true or optimum right now yeah so we still do need to be questioning and we do Mm. need to be curious we knew new do need to be available to new ideas and new possibilities and still simultaneously honoring the wisdom that is already present yeah, I love it. So Gina, where can people find you? Obviously, all of your information will be on the show notes, but where where can if people want to connect with you, work with you, read your books, where is the best place to come and find all things Gina? Uh, well, I do have a website, 
which is ginamartinauthor.com, all one word, Gina Martin Author. Um, I'm also on the Womancraft Publishing website because my books have been published through the deliciously brilliant Lucy Pierce Lucy at Womancraft Publishing. Um, I'm on Instagram also as Gina Martin Author, and I've been doing a daily reading, a little five to seven minute reading of my books every day. And it's all archived. So if you want to go get read to a little bit, you can oh, tap amazing. in there. And yeah. it's just enough time to have a cup of tea and a biscuit and, um, and have somebody read <laughs> to you. Take a sacred pause. Yeah, it's, it's right. Take a sacred pause and be read to a little bit. Mm-hmm. So those are the ways that people can find me. And, um, and I'm delighted if they do. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your wisdom and knowledge and yeah, opening up the dialogue of all of the things. <laughs> all of the things. We have to think about all the things. It's all a very busy things. head. It's very mm. busy in here. Yeah. <laughs> Whilst <laughs> taking action. <laughs> right. How do we amend the soil? By living. Yeah. Yeah. How do we amend our soil? Absolutely. It's been delightful, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you.